Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think the key here is that, yeah, you put money on early ideas so you can develop them, and some of them will lead to Moderna, some others will lead to nothing. You don't think about work-life balance. You think, you know, this vaccine is going to help the world and to help me, to help the family, to help mm. everyone. That was really the focus and, and the motivation for every single person working in the company. Welcome to episode nine of Triumph Connects. In this episode, I'm sharing my conversation with Marcello Damiani. Marcello is the Chief Digital and Operational Excellence Officer at Moderna and a member of the graduating class of 2015 of the Triumph Global EMBA. For those of you who have listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you may notice that Marcello is the first guest that I've had that is not a member of the faculty of one of Triumph's three founding schools. As we go forward, in general, we will continue to have guests that are faculty members at the schools. However, occasionally, we're going to have some alumni come on that will be able to give us some insights into particularly timely topics. Perhaps nothing fits that criteria better than having Marcello come on and tell us all about his experience as a senior leader at Moderna, a company that has played a major role in the historic development, production, and distribution of a vaccine for COVID-19. In our conversation, we discuss how Moderna, founded only about 10 years ago, grew to be a company that has a current market capitalization of more than $67 billion. We next briefly discuss the technology and techniques of using messenger RNA or mRNA to transform our own cells into mini vaccine factories. It turns out that this technique offers promise not only in the field of vaccines for viral infections, but also in oncology and in rare disease treatment. In other words, this technique of using mRNA and companies that use this platform like Moderna may well represent a significant and exciting new chapter in the history of medicine. So while we're all understandably focused on the use of mRNA in the creation of effective vaccines for COVID, the larger story here is that we may well be seeing the birth, the becoming to being of a completely new way of tackling some of our largest health challenges. My conversation with Marcello at least led me to have a much greater understanding of these exciting developments. As always, I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. A final reminder, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please remember to review and rate us and feel free to repost. All these things really do help others find out about these conversations. Thank you. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Marcello Damiani. Marcello Damiani, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me today. It's great to have you. I am so happy that you could be here with us. I imagine you are must be super, super busy. So all of us appreciate uh, you taking your time to talk to us today. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's getting better uh, today than it was last year. But yes, happy to be here and 
finally, uh, well, uh, hopefully sharing the experience with you. Is great. And I bet we, we all have something to learn from that experience. But, you know, we know each other from Triumph, where you were a member of the class of 2015, right? So, yeah, yeah 2015. So, just before I joined Moderna, actually. Just before, yeah, I remember. And now maybe it's a good place to start a little bit with your background. So, can you tell us a little bit about where you're originally from and where did you grow up and how did you end up? Because I think that you studied information systems, right? So, how, yeah. how did you get from where you started to where you ended up? Yeah, so I was born in Lebanon and spent all my childhood actually in Lebanon and uh, studied over there in, in the Lycée Francais. Uh, my name doesn't show it because my father's origin are Italians and that, that's why uh, my name doesn't show this Lebanon connection. And uh, at the age of 18, well, uh, as you remember, maybe the Lebanon at the time was in civil war and university were closed and so on. So I've decided to move to France and uh, do my studies in France. And I went to Toulouse and uh, studied uh, computer science and did a master in information system architecture and started my career uh, in the aerospace industry, actually. Well, as a software engineer, I was developing software that we put to test the software that we have in the satellites. So that was my first <laughs> job. It was very interesting, uh, amazing experience in Southern France. And um, slowly so, but surely, yeah. So let me just interrupt. So you're a teenager in Lebanon. Yeah. The civil war breaks out. It's chaos, right? Universities close. So you take off, you go to France, end up studying computer science and, and information systems and start writing software to test the software that's going onto satellites. Yeah. That's quite a journey, a little bit of time. Yeah, it, it was it was a very exciting journey and lots of learning, I, I would say, in, in that journey itself. So. This is the start of my career in, in computer science, I would say. And shortly after I joined Motorola, where I spent 12 years of my career in various positions in the high-tech industry. So I moved from aerospace to high-tech and at Motorola I hold multiple positions and ended up in Chicago and in, in the headquarter in Schaumburg, managing the network and telecommunication for Motorola on a global basis. When Motorola split up, uh, I decided with the family that um, my wife is French and uh, my kids were young at the time. They had a beautiful experience in the US, but they wanted to see grandparents and family. And at the time received a call from a company in France, a diagnostic company, which is in the life science industry to join them. And I decided, okay, now maybe it's time to go back. And we went back. We went to Lyon and started in Biomario, which is a global diagnostic company. Uh, and shortly after I became the CIO at, at the company. And at the time, Stefan Bancel, and this connection is with Moderna. Stefan Bancel is currently the CEO of Moderna, was the CEO of Biomario. And I worked for him for two, three years before he left to build Moderna. And a couple of years, he called me uh, and I was doing my uh, EMBA at the time and finishing the EMBA. It was just, just at the end, he called me and said, look, Marcello, it seems that we have a very strong concept now, proof of concept. Uh, I want you to come and, and see what we are doing and so on. 
And this is how it started at Moderna. So I came to Boston, I, I visited Moderna. It was a very small company. They had raised uh, money with, with uh, partnering with AstraZeneca at the time. And um, when I saw the technology, when I saw what they are trying to achieve, at the time it wasn't obvious yet, but the promise was there. And I decided it's time for me to make this big change. And the Trium and EMBA has changed all my man- mindset anyway. <laughs> so it was, it was time for me to do this big change. So going from the CIO of a multinational French company to this small startup that is hopefully building the new science and the new technology that will help the world. So this was the thinking at the time. Well, that's great. And thanks for putting Trium in that, in that framework. Yeah, Trium was a, was a big eye-opener, I would say, for me, yeah. Well, that's great. So now you're the Chief Digital and Operational Excellence Officer at Moderna. Can you tell us what that means you're responsible for? Because, I, I mean, I get the Chief Digital Officer, but the Operational Excellence, so it seems like a bit of a combined role, but tell me what it means. Yeah, it's a nice title, isn't it? <laughs> It's a great title. <laughs> yes. So you can define it in two ways. First, it's the integration of the internal functions and processes. So we better the outcome of the company and the connection with the external world. I think this is the key here is that we make sure that our functions and processes are well integrated and that we are connected to the world. The other aspect of it is how you use technology and data to drive and improve outcome at the company. So those are the two facets of the role. And if you look at it, it's very important that you join processes with digitization because they go together. I mean, you cannot digitize based on manual processes or paper processes. You need to rethink your processes for a digital world. And I think this is why we call the chief digital and operational excellence officer is you need to work on both sides to make sure that you have the best outcome. And the best outcome is not only about efficiency. Most importantly, it's about the quality that you get. It's about accelerating the learning inside the company. It's about the scale and how you scale the company and and speed up the scale of the company and so on. Of course, efficiency is one of the elements, but it's not the most important one. My guess is, in the future, the word that will disappear from that title is digital, because I think it'll just be assumed that operations, operational excellence includes digital. You won't need that anymore because people will assume that that's what it means. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a very valid point. I think if you look at it back in the 80s and the 90s, you had IT and CIOs and, and so on, and it was how you use technology to improve your outcome. That's what IT was supposed to yeah. do. And with time, the connotation changed to cost and, and burden instead of how IT is going to drive value in the company. And I think this is what we're trying to put back and is how, how you can drive value by making a digital environment, by using your data appropriately to drive decisions, by making sure you have algorithmics that are helping you with your quality with your scale and, and so on. So, so this is really what, what it means. Okay. So you had all this experience with Motorola and then you kind of went into the biotech area. 
If you were to be the chief digital and operational excellence officer at another kind of company outside of the industry of biotech, do you think it would be very different? Or do you think there's specific challenges in that role in a company like Moderna? I, I think the goal is the same. I think how you do your work probably is different. When I went to the industry, the life science industry, I had to go back to learning, learning all, all the biology and what it means and the implication and so on. And I think the biggest learning for me was, and the high tech data is native. I mean, you, you go to the Google of the world, so you collect the data from the websites and so on. And the pharma industry, you need to do experiment to get the right data. And the data is not standardized and it's not in one place. So you need to be deliberate about how you're collecting and structuring yourself to be able to get the data. And then you use this data to make the informed decisions that you have to make from this oh, data. Okay. So this, really, is, this, yeah. this is the big difference that I see between the pharma industry and, and the tech industry uh, that I work. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. So, so in the pharma, you're, you're not only organizing, structuring, um, using the data. In pharma, you're, you're creating the data. And so you have to think about how you're going to organize, structure the data that's coming out of your creative processes. So that, that would be the difference maybe between the pharma and if you were just in a high tech company. Yeah, and then what data you want to collect? Because in your experiment, you can collect a set of data. It can be a big set of data or small sets of data and and there's cost to any collection of data through the experiments and so on so so those are the differences that i see between the two industries and so do you work closely then with the people who design the experiments in how the data is going to be collected when and where they're going to store things like this yeah yeah i mean i we i have a team that work very closely with the research and actually the scientists at Moderna, they work inside the portal that we have developed for them. So instead of building, designing their messenger RNA and proteins outside of the system, they design it through a portal uh, where, where we give them access to public libraries, private libraries, all the characteristics of the chemistries and so on that they need. And when they finish, actually, they press a button and it goes to a central lab that we fully automated to collect data and so on. So yeah, yeah, we work very closely with them to make sure that we are collecting this data so we can build on top of this data some algorithmics that goes and help them and so on. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Moderna and, and just the background of the of this particular company and and some industry questions as well. So. If you look at Moderna's rise, like you said, I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I did a little bit of background. Back in 2012, they raised 40 million in an equity investment. And I looked at the market cap today and it's about 67 billion. So not bad in let's say nine years, right? Then I looked at a little bit about, you know, how, how has it achieved such growth, right? What's been its path? And its path has been just an amazing amount, at least for my mind, of partnerships and alliances with other pharma companies, with public and private funding people. So in my mind, I have a kind of naive view of a successful company as, you know, a, a startup company starts and they have some great product and they compete with the big boys and they win market share. And as they get bigger and bigger, they go into other product lines and suddenly one day they become a big company or something like this after time. But it seems like Moderna's journey was just this complete network embedded in this network of strategic partnerships. 
And I just wondered, is, is that really typical now of this kind of fast growing, successful company in biotech, or is this atypical of Moderna? I won't say it's typical in the biotech. I think the biotech industry, they always worked with alliances and partnership. I think what's atypical with Moderna is, as you said, is the combination. First, I think it's the technology itself and, and the promise of this technology at the time and the nature of the platform. Moderna is a platform, whether you're doing a messenger RNA for a vaccine or doing a messenger RNA for uh, therapeutics, principles are the same and therefore it make it more easy to partner in different area of therapeutics and that what amplified at the beginning the number of partnerships that we were able to achieve because we partnered with different companies for various therapeutics area and i think it's it's a must have in the biotech industry because although you have a new technology those uh, big pharmaceutical companies, they have the experience, they have the knowledge, know-how in specific uh, disease uh, setting or therapeutic setting and so on. Uh, so uh, no one alone can master those in a very mm. short period of time. And this is what we did uh, at the beginning is we used our technology and we showed the benefit of the technology in the different therapeutic area. And this helped us do partnership with multiple companies in the early stages. Fascinating. I, I want to get back into the, the actual technology because I think this analogy of using it, thinking of it as a platform, is really, really interesting. But I just want to, th you know, if we can, just want to look a little bit more about this kind of structure of how Moderna grew and what it tells us about the industry. So you guys work with somebody called Flagship Pioneering, which was one of your founding investors. And it, it seems to play a really interesting role in the birth of all kinds of biotech firms. And as such, it's created a huge amount of value. Then at the same time, Moderna received funding from people like DARPA and BARDA, which are public money, um, to do research. Do you think something playing a similar role to like flagship pioneering, which I take as kind of a, a private firm, private equity kind of investment, uh, venture capitalists, a kind of a hybrid of these kind of things. Do you think that this kind of flagship pioneering role could be taken on by a kind of public or quasi-public entity? And it's a little bit broader point. So. It seems like a lot of the structure of early tech R&D funding revolves around public funding, right? In universities or to small startups, et cetera. But apart from the public goods that it produces, much of the direct financial flows only seem to go to private investors. And it could be flagship pioneer, it could be Moderna, it could be any startup we talk about in any industry. I'm just wondering, do you think that that's a result of a policy choice? Or do you think it's necessary to have this kind of diamondism of the kind of private money going into it? I think it's more the model itself than it's about public and private. I think what makes flagship very successful is they are an incubator. So they start very early using idea uh, from scientists across universities and attracting them and invest money and taking risk on those idea to develop companies. And I think this is the successful business model that is behind a flagship. Whether you can replicate this in a public setting or in another private setting, I think you need the ecosystem. 
flagship is based in Cambridge, where you have Harvard, MIT, mm. and different universities, and so on. And I think it's all this ecosystem together that create emulation and create those companies that you see coming out of flagship. And flagship, I mean, is very clever in the way they invest in, in the early ideas and develop them using this incubator model. And then, then those small incubators becomes companies and then uh, some sure. of them become a Moderna. So I, I think this is my take on it. You probably are able to replicate this in a, uh, in a public setting, but you need to take the risks that as well some venture capitalists take like flagship. Yeah, and, and, and to do that, you'd need a, a large portfolio of bets, which many of them wouldn't work, but some of them would. And, and again, I, I would never think of such a public entity taking any, anything like a controlling role, but like just having some small equity stake in early stage companies, it, it just might be interesting because I think that there's this, as you said, the model is incubators and private investment, early stage investment, and then you have government funding of basic research. And it seems to me that, well, it may be, and I don't know, and uh, that's why I asked, it seems to me that that's kind of an artificial division. And it would be interesting to explore other models because that might lead to even greater funding for the type of successes that we see with Moderna. That, that was the idea. Yeah, uh, yeah and, I, and I think the key here is that you put money on early ideas so, and, and funding and get this funding on early ideas so you can develop them. And some of them will lead to Moderna, some others will will lead to nothing, but yeah. you need to make your bets. That's for sure. In fact, most of them will lead to nothing. Right. <laughs> most, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> most of them leads to nothing. Yeah. So, um, but you get, you get a hit and the hit that you get occasionally is worth all the investments that you took on everything else. So let's think about Moderna and this technology of mRNA. And you were saying that it, it's a way to think of it as kind of like a platform. Maybe for our listeners, could you just describe in layman's terms What's different about the technology mRNA and how it works different from other methods of kind of trying to fight disease? Yeah, so your body on a daily basis produces billions of messenger RNA. So they go to the DNA and from the DNA, they extract the codes of protein. Protein, this is what makes your body work, whether it's the enzymes, the hormones, everything in your body is protein. So it goes to the DNA and extract the code of the proteins and produce them. So you have billions of times that this is happening in your body on a daily basis. Okay, so I'm, sit my, I'm a cell and I have a protein in me and I need to make something. So I head over to the DNA and get a strand and it tells me how to build this thing that I need. Is that, is that right, more or less? And this is the messenger RNA that okay. goes to the DNA and then produces those proteins. It's like a book of instructions. It's a book of instruction, absolutely. Okay. So what we do is we synthesize this messenger RNA externally with the code of the protein that we want to produce, and we send this instruction to the cells and the body to produce the protein to cure or prevent disease. So this is as simple as this. This is the mechanism by which we operate. So really what we are sending is, is an instructions to the cell to produce the protein. So if, if you take it, in the vaccine world, 
all the viruses are made of protein. The surface of the virus of, are made of protein. And many people today, they heard about this spike protein on the yeah. surface of the COVID uh, virus. So what we do in, in the vaccine setting is we build a messenger RNA and we send it with the code of the uh, proteins that sits on the surface of the virus. And we send it to your body and your body start producing those proteins that are foreign to the body. So your immune system will react against those protein because they are foreign, they are virus protein. So, and, and, and your body in, uh, will uh, build the immune system to attack them. And by doing this, well, you are vaccinated. So when the virus come, the real virus, here we were only having protein, when the real virus come, well, your body understand and knows the signature of the protein on the surface of the virus and will go and attack them. Let me just put it in my simple terms. So you put in new instruction books that you've designed for the little little tiny factories inside the cells to produce, and this time they're just producing the protein spike. Nothing yeah. else, but just the end of the protein spike. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I they, don't know exactly which protein but, does more than the spike, but the proteins that sits on the surface of the virus. Yeah, yeah. something like it. So, so they, so whatever the, the, this protein on the outside, and the cell starts to put that out, and the body goes, "What the hell's this? This isn't anything we recognize. We need yeah. to attack this." Yeah. But it's just the little spike protein. It's nothing else. Yes. But then when the virus comes along and it's covered with these spike proteins, the body goes, "Ah, I know what this is." and it attacks it and therefore then it can't infect, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So in general, the, the approach, and this is maybe as far as the platform, and I'm sorry, I'm just using my very simple way of thinking of it. It's not just COVID because you could give instructions, essentially what you're turning every cell into a little mini factory of whatever you want it to produce. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we do. I mean, COVID is not the first vaccine that we worked on. We worked on multiple vaccines before COVID. COVID is the one that everyone knows, unfortunately, because of the pandemic we have today. But we worked on multiple vaccines and we have still many clinical trials ongoing for various diseases on, on vaccine. But this is only the vaccine piece. You have as well in, in the oncology setting, we have clinical trial on personalized cancer vaccine. And this is the same principle apply. So instead here of the virus, well, we look at the differences between a tumor cell and a normal cell, and we assess the mutation in the DNA because cancer is a mutation in the DNA of the cell. And we look at the mutation, and what we do is we build a messenger RNA that mimic those mutations, those uh, cancerogenic mutations, and we instruct the body to produce those. And by producing those cancer mutations, what happened is your immune system will react against those. And by reacting against those, it will react against the same signature on the mutated cell uh, and oh, hopefully okay. kill them. So, so that this is another setting and it's still in, in the same time, but you can do as well therapeutics. So let's take rare disease. A rare disease is some, more than often a gene that is missing in your DNA. So what we do is we code this gene in the messenger RNA and we instruct the cell to produce it. And the hope is that your body is producing now naturally 
uh, this gene and therefore curing the disease that you have. So, so we have all those ongoing clinical trials in the various areas, and hopefully those will lead to additional cure or vaccine. Fascinating. So a couple questions popped to my mind. So if we go back to the COVID one or the cancer one, or we, could, we could think about different things. COVID maybe is the easiest one. So I get this book of instruction and my cells start to produce these protein spikes. So my antibodies, my defense systems learn how to fight these. Therefore, they learn how to fight the virus. Will my cells continually forever after be producing these spikes? Or once the book's read, do they stop producing it? And no, no, naturally, those uh, your body eliminates the, the messenger RNA after a period of time. I think it's 24 hours. I don't know the exact number, but your body eliminates those and, and it stops producing those spike protein. So so it's it's a natural way of how it just we, purges it, itself. It, it's biodegradable. So right. your body eliminates this and, and that's it. For any messenger RNA, there is a half-life. Naturally, there is a half-life. So okay. It, doesn't last in, in the body forever. Yeah. And is that why it has to be so cold? Is that why it's hard to move it? Because it's it, you don't want to start that deterioration process. Well, I I, I don't know I don't know the reasons exactly. Uh, remember, I'm not I'm not yeah. in the science field here. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But uh, well, I would say uh, it's a combination of the envelope as well that you put on the messenger RNA and. Uh, to make sure that you are protecting the messenger RNA when you inject it to the cell. It's a combination of both. That, that's why you, you need to, to put it. Yeah, but, I think it's fatty lipids or something like this that you put it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Let, let's go back to the oncology section. You said personalized. So I believe that what Moderna does is they take an individual's healthy cell and an individual's cancerous cell and then do, and this is where I guess maybe you come in because it's data analytics, it's it's algorithms that try to figure out what the difference is. And so it can then come up with a rule book for the proteins to create something that will trigger an immune response against the cancerous cells. So is that right? Is it based on the individual themselves? Yeah, it's based, every individual will have their own drug in that setting. So we do the biopsy for the individual, we compare, um, the cancer cell versus the natural cell. And, and uh, we use algorithmic, as you said, to, to identify what mutation we want to code as messenger RNA. And then we produce the batch specifically for this patient. Wow. So how, how would that be able to be scaled? Well, that's part of what we work on is uh, how you make sure that those machines are smaller and smaller and smaller and uh, and producing the the the, the number of batches needed needed for the patients. So right. That, that's what we work on, on, on a, well, on a daily basis. And hopefully that would be in the future all automated, right? So you would... It is already the case. In many cases, we have automated the production. For example, in our research setting, all the, uh, all, all the messenger RNA uh, and the lab that produced them is, is fully automated uh, and Wow. and digitized and we use algorithmics to help well predict yield or tell the scientists about their sequence how easy or difficult is it to produce and whether they they can change some some coding in the sequence of messenger rna to produce the same protein and so on so so all this we we implemented and and this is why 
uh, why the digitization and and yeah. and the, the operational excellence is key in, in that setting because uh, it's important that you have uh, you have the most efficient way to produce those messenger RNAs. Absolutely. Here's here's a possibility. We, you know, in these days we're looking for uh, silver linings, right? So it may be when we look back. Let's say we're looking at the history of medicine 100 years from now. Somebody's writing the history of medicine in the in the 21st century, right? Maybe they'll say COVID-19 was horrible. The, the death toll was horrendous and it was a huge challenge for all of humankind. But what it did was it was the first chapter. It was the first start of a completely revolutionary new way. It proved itself as a new way, a, a, a completely new kind of formula for for fighting disease, even down to the individual level. So it might be that we look back and we see this as and I'm not suggesting in any way a blessing, but we would see it as the birth of a new kind of way of treating disease. Do you think that that's too much? Well, I will be I will be humble here. Let's I think I think we have proved the technology work for COVID vaccine. We have 20 programs that are ongoing. I think we have uh, we have lots of promises and uh, lots of uh, ideas. Uh, hopefully, yes, uh, but I, I, I would want us to go and continue and and uh, and deliver on those twenty programs because we can before we can claim it. I, I, I love your humbleness. I love it, Marcello. But I, I'm excited about it. It must be it must be really exciting to work in a firm or a company that's working on such exciting things. You know, it, it must give huge amount of kind of meaningfulness to your life in, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was it was a life changer for me uh, the day I joined, actually. And, and, and now with COVID, it's a, it's really a different, uh, a completely different uh, experience. Yeah. So given this current crisis, let's talk a little bit about uh, how it affected you. So what was your work-life balance like last year? <laughs> I would call it, what was your work life? <laughs> yeah, I think you know, it's, it's, it was an exceptional time. Uh, you needed not only to develop the vaccine and make sure that it's safe and efficacious and in patients and so on, but we needed at the same time to scale the company, the manufacturing partner with other uh, with others to be able to produce, scale up our supply chain to be able to distribute and deliver. Uh, so 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 we went through a major change in the company to be able to achieve what we had achieved uh, so far, and uh, and you don't think about work-life balance. You you think you know, this, this vaccine is going to help the world and to help me, to help the family, to help mm. everyone. Mm. And, and that was really the focus and, and the motivation for every single person working in the company. So at what stage, what time frame did you guys start going kind of full out on this problem? You know, was it in February, March? When, when did you say this is... When uh, I think it's the Chinese government that published the sequence of the virus on the internet. This is where it all started. As you know, I mean, with our technology, you don't need the virus. All you need is the sequence of the virus so yeah. you can understand the protein. And uh, I think our, our CEO was at Davos and he was discussing and he was even looking at planes from Wuhan to the rest of the world to see how, how this is going to propagate. 
and and he called he called us and said well this seems very serious we need to uh, work on it and interestingly we were working with the nih uh, to simulate uh, a pandemic with the previous strain of uh, of coronavirus like mers and sars and yeah. so, so we were in an exercise we, we wanted to demonstrate our platform as an exercise for a pandemic and well this exercise from moved from an exercise to and a simulation to a real exercise, and we had to ramp up everything and demonstrate uh, the, the the platform and what can achieve. And as you know today, well, well so once you get the sequence, how long does it take for you to get the first kind of develop the first potential mRNA strand? Yeah, I, th I think from sequence the first uh, potential mRNA strand was forty-two days, if I 40, remember. Forty-two days. Wow. Yeah, I think we we started uh, phase one of clinical trials and those the first uh, the first healthy volunteer sixty-three days after or sixty-two days. I don't remember the exact number. So that's the power of being a platform and being prepared for this type of uh, of activities. So it took you 63 days from sequence to having something that you're ready to test. Yeah. And then all the rest of the time between that 63 days and then when we started having the vaccinations available to people were through the testing process. Yeah. And that's just measuring efficacy and safety, right? Measuring efficacy and safety, absolutely. There's very strict uh, regulatory guidelines on how you should be doing your clinical trials and, and so on. So you go through them step by step, phase one, phase two, phase three. And that, that's between the 63 days and and when we had the, the, the vaccine approved. And were you part of Warp Speed? Did you get help through the Warp Speed program or not? Yeah, we, we, we work very closely with the WorldSpeed program. Actually, WorldSpeed, they, they are uh, operating all the logistics to distribute in the US and so on. So we work very closely with them uh, on on anything that we were doing. Uh, so so, so it, we, had, we had very good partnership, I would say, and discussions with the regulatories and, and so on to be able to deliver in, in such a short period of mm. time for the life cycle of our industry. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think this is another interesting thing about this particular pandemic was the level of cooperation and coordination early on in the industry, in your industry. Do you think that that's a model going forward? Do you, I mean, first of all, what level was it? So people describe this as, you know, the vaccine race. And in a sense, I'm not sure that's the right analogy, because it seems to me there's loads of cooperation across the different uh, firms, but also a healthy competition. But I, I just wonder what what was the relationship between you and your competitors in this space? Yeah. No, I, th I think the race is more was the was, was the virus itself than it is was the others. We, we were focused really on how can we go and, and, and produce as soon as possible to prevent this pandemic exploding. Uh, so, so we had plenty of collaboration with partners, with BADA, uh, and uh, with the NIH, with all sorts of entities uh, that helped in the development of the vaccine, the FDA is, as well, to agree on the regulatory path to make sure that we can have approval at the end and that we are doing the right things uh, and we don't discover 
at the end that we did the, uh, we, we did not follow the the right uh, guidance from the regulator. So we were working very closely with the regulator, whether it's in in Europe, in the UK, in the US, uh, all over the place. We were working with partner like Lonza, with Catalan, which uh, filled the vial at the end, very important in the process, and so on to prepare for when the vaccine is ready so they can start producing and 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 helping us distri distribute it so so it was it, it was lots of partnership and lots of collaboration to get it where it is today so with the other with the other big partners like say because you said that you had worked with some in the early days with AstraZeneca uh, you know you have Pfizer you have now Johnson and Johnson coming on you know you have all of these different did was there was there much data sharing or information sharing at the beginning across those or was it mostly the, the information that was public was shared through these kind of public organizations I think uh, there was there was sharing through the operation warp speed uh, for example right. uh, I don't know to which extent there there was sharing but at least on the clinical trials we were very transparent I mean all the companies were very transparent mm. they published their clinical trial protocols which was very unusual uh, for companies so everyone could see everyone else protocol and and so on and and really it helped improve the outcome for everyone I believe can you tell us a little bit about why that was important about sharing the protocols? Because it, it sounds from the outside a bit like a technical thing, but this these were, you say it was a little bit unusual, but as I understand it, these are usually very highly kind of guarded pieces of information because they, yeah. they have a lot of value. And in this yeah. case, they were shared. So yeah, tell me. I, I think it's transparency was key to build trust. As you remember, there, uh, vaccine and there was lots of discussions around vaccines and how we're building the clinical trials and how we're going very quick and so on. So it was, it was very important to, for any company, I think, to be very transparent on how we're building those clinical trials. So you have external view on the protocols. They can go and see exactly what's in them, how we are measuring the success, how we are uh, recruiting the, the the healthy volunteers, the diversity of those healthy vo volunteers, and so on. So it's important that we we had this open, so can it can be criticized publicly if need be. And this is what we did, and I think every company did it for that same reason, and and it helped. It, it helped to build the confidence around the vaccine and the pace at which we were developing the vaccine, and so on. For what it's worth. I think that was such an important move for the following reasons that, I mean, we, we still, even in spite of all of that transparency, we see kickback against these vaccines. People are suspicious that it went too quickly and they, they, they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, they're putting enough stuff to change my DNA and all of these, you know, bizarre kind of theories. And imagine how much worse it would have been if, in fact, all of this stuff wasn't completely transparent so people could see exactly what was happening. And and without that transparency, maybe you would have had the speed of development, but I I think that there would have been a danger of not having uptake, people not willing to take it. So it's not it's not just trust between the companies, I think. This was trust for the populations that were going to be taking the, the medication. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think it's a trust that we're putting all those documents in the public domain. So everyone feel comfortable with what we're doing and and all the scientists in the world have access to it. it's not only the other companies of course yeah yeah of course yeah and i think what's important as well to mention is that 
the speed comes from multiple facets. First is, uh, well, the technology itself and so on. But second is that you're operating, uh, you're operating in parallel. So you're, you're taking some financial risk. And here uh, we, we have been held by the BARDA, which invested in us. So usually in, in clinical trial, you do phase one, you wait for the results, you do phase two, you wait for the results, you do phase three. In this pandemic setting, you were able to prepare for phase two and invest the money in phase two, even before you knew if phase one was, success, uh, was successful or not. And this helped immensely in accelerating the pace. So, so th those are two elements, the platform, the investment at risk, I would say, uh, to, to accelerate the programs. And the third piece is around the clinical trials themselves. Uh, you, you know, the pandemic, you have so many people infected that you could have uh, the statistical models that work very appropriately and, and you can get the results of those statistical models very quickly between placebo and, and infected people. Because if you have very small levels of infection, then it's very much it's much more difficult. You know, the, the thing that you were saying at the beginning, I think, is super important to emphasize. When I talk to people about the vaccines, often you get or when you read the newspaper and the media, you get this idea is the reason it went so fast is that they were able to cut all the red tape. And what I try to say is it's not a matter of cutting the red tape because that gives people think, oh, well, if they cut all this red tape, maybe it's not safe. Maybe the red tape is another word for for kind of, you know, being careful. And as I understand what you said, you're able to kind of in the normal course, you would never make the investment in phase two before you had the results of phase one, because what you'd be worried about is if you had everything ready for phase two and you made all the investments in phase one, they said, nah, no, it's not working. You know, it's not worth it. All that would be lost. Absolutely. And so the financial stuff that helped wasn't necessarily to set up new labs or to do all this stuff. It was to say, look, we've got your back. Please go ahead and plan. The minute we get the results from stage one, we want you to be ready to launch stage two as soon as we know it's safe. And as soon as stage two is done, we want you. And sometimes even we can start at some of the things beforehand that don't put people in risk. Yeah. So the compression of that time wasn't because corners are being cut on the science, the progression in the time was because money was being thrown at it. So companies weren't taking the existential risk of investing in things that they maybe would never use. Yeah. Is that it? Absolutely. That's exactly how it worked. Okay. And if you look at it, it's, it's similar to our initial discussion, taking risk and bets uh, on multiple companies, uh, uh, and this is how uh, how the VCs and uh, work to, to be able to develop biotech companies. Here, it wasn't about developing a biotech company, but it, it's about developing appropriately the clinical trials, taking financial risk to make sure even if you don't have the result of phase one or you can move into phase two, even if you don't have the result of phase uh, two, uh, you can prepare for phase three, three and so on. And when you get the result, well, uh, sometimes uh, your financial uh, bet worked. In some cases, it, it didn't work. I mean, you have some companies that invested uh, at risk in, in phase two and, in, and their phase one uh, didn't work. So, yeah. And this could be, I mean, this is because of the scope of the COVID-19 crisis, that investment is obviously worthwhile. But 
you know, any individual that has cancer, that's a crisis, right? That's a crisis for that person. So one can imagine that these kind of financial cushions to make those judgments easier for companies to invest in stage two or stage three trials could be applied. That could be a place for public money to come in to help in exchange for some small equity position as the company, if and when the company becomes successful with that particular venture. That's the kind of model I have in my head, but I, yeah. I don't know. And this, this is exactly what happened uh, here. It wasn't about equity, but it was about availability of vaccines and the pricing of the vaccine for the investment. So do you think, I mean, that, that might be one lesson for the biotech and biomedical or life sciences uh, industry that comes out of this crisis. Will your industry change any because of COVID? I think the agility of the industry have to change. Because if you look at it, I mean, the industry overall is a bit slow in tackling diseases and looking at how we tackle those diseases have to change. And I think, well, I'm the chief digital officer, so I think that data and algorithmics and, and technology is going to help drastically the industry to change and transform in the future. And I think this is this is a big lesson from this this crisis. And, and hopefully we will see the investment in, in the future in this dual area of tech and biotech to make sure that we develop the, the cure of the future. And what about lessons specifically for Moderna? Has Moderna learned anything? Yeah, we wished we, we wished we had scaled uh, a year before COVID <laughs> came. Yeah, we were preparing all those scales, and we were preparing to for the launch of a product like COVID. But uh, well, it came I would say one or two year earlier than expected. And the lesson learned is adjust your strategy. I mean, let, let's you need to adjust all the time your strategy to your environment. Uh, hmm. I mean, Professor Sonia would be, uh, <laughs> would be delighted to There you to go. Hear. <laughs> A call out for Sonia Marciano. There you go, right there. Um, how about you personally? What I mean, it must have been at the same time the best and the worst of all times, right? So wh what did you what have you taken away now a year on for you, for yourself? Yeah, so it was at the same time very scary and very exciting. Yeah, like everyone, I went, like everyone, worked from home for uh, several months. I had the family, uh, they get the kids at home. They even came with friends because they couldn't travel. They were uh, international and so on. So we went through the confinement like many people. And at the same time, I, I, I would say it was, for me, it was exciting because I, I didn't have time to think about it. I mean, we were so involved in, in developing the vaccine, scaling the company and so on. It was very, very exciting times at the same time as the confinement and, and being locked at home and, and working remotely and so on. I think the big lesson learned is how you, you work and innovate in a remote fashion. That's still for me a challenge, I would say, despite all the work that we've done remotely. Uh, I think how you engage your teams, uh, how you work with your team changes. I think it was, for us, it was 
uh, more than okay because uh, we I knew all the people uh, and, and we were working before very closely and so on. And when the pandemic hit, we went home and we kept all those connections. But I think the lesson learned is how you build this for new people joining the company. I mean, in, at Moderna, we hired plenty of people and all those people are joining us and they are joining remotely. How you do this? I think it's not only for us as a company, for, for the leaders in the company and so on, but it's for all companies and probably sure. as well for you as as professors and, and the university and how I see I see my daughter or my son working remotely and it doesn't seem so obvious despite all the technology that is available and connection that they have with their faculties. Yeah, it's a giant experiment, isn't it? I mean, it's and, a giant experiment. And I so. think that, um, yeah, I think I think we'll see. I mean, I some of the early stuff that's come out, some of the early research that come out, Marcello, is exactly what you're saying, that a lot of the success of the early working with distance has relied on the social capital that was constructed beforehand. Yeah. So the people you knew beforehand. Now, if you have people come in into that context like that, it's not clear they have the social capital to build upon. So you and I can have this conversation. And because we've we've known each other personally, I would guess that our conversation is different than if we'd never met before, or if we'd only met online. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see. My sense is that it, it will always be some combination of the two things, just because it makes so much more sense. You know. True, our conversation would be different, but we wouldn't be having the conversation because I wouldn't be in Boston, right? (laughs) So, so, so that's, that's one thing. Um, And I I mean, I I think I I hadn't even thought that you guys at Moderna, of course, you'd be working distantly as well. It's it's somehow in my mind, the pandemic wouldn't have affected you guys because you're in this, you know, but of course it does. And so you had to do all of this stuff and adapt to a new learning, completely new way of learning and working and doing business. And so it makes your accomplishments even more amazing. And uh, I must say that um, on a personal level, uh, my mother just was recently uh, vaccinated with a Moderna uh, vaccine. So she was she was lucky enough to, to, to get you guys. So so that's that's fantastic. I'm really happy, happy for that. So the last thing I wanted to ask you kind of and then we'll wrap it up is you came upon Trium, uh, the executive MBA we offer, and and we had the pleasure of having you as a student. And what advice would you give to us, you know, to help us prepare leaders like you? I mean, again, I just have this image of you as a teenager, you know, running around Lebanon, and you you end up in this. You're humble. You're a humble man, and you aren't going to like this, but in this kind of heroic role, in a kind of year that will go down in history is kind of one of the, the greatest achievements of science, you know, and we hope to be able to, to play a role in the development of those future leaders. But what advice would you give to us to try to help people like you face the challenges that you faced? I think I think Triumph have already multiple facets of this. It's the diversity is having having this different uh, different mindsets between the different faculties, different perspective, and so on. I think those are key elements that I think you need to build and 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 strengthen and continue to do as uh, in, in Triumph. I think the other piece is around agility around 
a, change, a changing environment. I think the world is going to be accelerating its changes, whether it's on the environmental side, on the medical side, there will be lots of changes ahead of us. And I think the key of for success is how you build leaders that can adapt to those changes. I think this is probably uh, what I would suggest for trying to maybe focus on and work on is how you build those leaders that can help uh, in, in a changing environment and continuously changing environment. It's a radically changing environment. Of course, that's the key. I, I completely agree. And that it's so much more a difficult task than this idea of teaching somebody how to do a discounted cash flow analysis. I mean, yeah. that's <laughs> that, I remember this as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's needed. It's not, nothing against discounted cash flow analysis. I mean, we need these things. But at the same time, it's much, much harder to say, I want you to help someone become more adaptable, radical change than to say, what's you know the fourth element in the formula for this particular financial calculation um but yeah that's what we're aiming for and that's what we're hoping to do because i think you're exactly right that's that's what's going to differentiate success and failure in the future for leaders so last question and then i'll get you out of here and we ask this for each one of our guests and by the way you're our first alumni as a oh, guest thank you. so uh i want to ask you i'm going to treat you the same as the the faculty members what's one book TV show, podcast, uh, anything fiction, nonfiction that you've enjoyed in the last year that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay. Uh, well, you're, you're in the UK and I, I say the crown. Well, I didn't, I didn't watch many, many TV shows, to be honest. No, I bet you haven't. <laughs> it's so, an unfair question. <laughs> uh, one of them, I mean, I, I really enjoyed was the crown. And okay. I like historical movies, so that was one of them. So All right, so it's check not a fun one, but yes. <laughs> so check out the crown. All right, Marcello, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it, and good luck to yourself and to Moderna. And uh, long may you guys work on and improving our lives through this amazing technology. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thank you. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.